0: Hello creeps, I'll be your ghost, I mean host, as we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. John, John, my my dear forestry pal, would you like to lead us in to today's episode? You know... Uh, I would. I would. And,
1: you know, I was I was thinking today, I was thinking today um, that it would be really nice to
0: get away for the weekend. Um, mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you knew any good local campsites. Oh, yeah. You know what? I, I know this one. That's it's uh, it's maintained by this mayor who will never close it down under any circumstances. So you will guaranteeably have a place to camp there. Uh, is uh, oh, it might be the same campsite that I'm thinking of, where like 20,
1: uh, 25 years ago today, uh, a bunch of <laughs> camp counselors let somebody drown, and there is like a sentient black mold uh, that's growing there, and there's also something very strange in the in the in the forest. <laughs> but but we'll never close it. We'll never close it because capitalism must be
0: fed with the blood of women and children. <laughs> absolutely absolutely whether at the hands of a great white shark or a great white pine yeah uh, you know i was thinking today
1: i was thinking today about the kind of like meta narrative of this show and you know mm-hmm. some, sometimes i feel that like people may get a kind of sense of you know sometimes from week to week you can kind of see themes emerging right <laughs> yeah. and i i I feel like sometimes, sometimes some of our episodes maybe, if you listen on a weekly basis, it may feel like a little bit like we're jumping from topic to topic. But what I'm really excited about is that after talking about killing of sacred deer, we're now going on to the next natural thing. It's a really, it's it's kind of a spiritual sequel in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thematically, it's almost identical, um, and it makes so much sense to do this immediately after talking about killing of a sacred
0: deer well well dear listeners where do deer live deer deers live in the trees right they live in forests so naturally we must now talk about trees i realize that saying deers live in the trees is is kind of technically correct but also deeply misleading <laughs> uh it's it, it, it,
1: it's it's i think that's if if there is um if there's anyone listening who is involved in forestry land management uh botany <laughs> you may want to skip this one if you listen to this podcast for our accuracy in scientific terminology um yeah just maybe maybe just hit next maybe just hit next on your podcast app there's going to be more uh this one might make you i don't know it's maybe not the most accurate but we are going to talk about trees we're gonna we're gonna talk about trees (laughs) and we're gonna talk about a lot of different kinds of tree uh it's gonna be 100 a hundred percent
0: uh botanically accurate trees (laughs) i'm i'm so excited to talk about these documentaries on the very true and very accurate real life natural behaviors of several different types of pine uh yeah this is the, yeah we it's it's all about
1: pine and to lead us in i can think of no better way than to ask uh respected natural philosopher <laughs> and podcasting forest ranger ash to explain what today's films
0: are all about i think i'm going to use that as my new official title now whenever i need to write a little bio note <laughs> What is the death of a tree? I ask this in the most broad sense. What is it ontologically for the tree, the environment, and for ourselves? In 1964, Donald Rusk Curry gained the distinction typically reserved for weird horror protagonists. Curry was coring trees in the Great Basin when his corer became lodged in a bristlecone pine. A park ranger helped him to free the tool by cutting down the tree. In a moment that I can only imagine was the stuff of pure terror, Curry counted the rings of the tree and realized that the tree that he and the ranger had killed was over 5,000 years old. That bristlecone pine first planted its roots during the transition from the Neolithic period to the Calcolithic period. It was older than the written word, the invention of the wheel, and nearly everything that you and I would recognize as human. Curry and the unnamed ranger are some of the few people to have unknowingly killed a god. On December 10th, 1977, Julia Butterfly Hill made her ascent into the canopy of a 1,000-year-old redwood tree known as Luna. Hill would go on to live in the canopy of that redwood. Hill weathered freezing rain, 40 km an hour winds during El Nino, and persistent harassment from loggers and helicopters to protect that tree from deforestation. Luna first planted its roots before the unification of the Saxon kingdoms of present-day England, during the historic decline of the Catholic Church known as the Pornocracy, and during the Golden Age of the Islamic world. Circumstance led Curry to kill a god and Hill to participate in the salvation of one. Our perception of trees belies and reveals our limited and deeply ideological perspectives of on the world. Rather than seeing them as divine emanations of the real, potent extensions of the interconnected existence we share with all things on this earth, Our society sees them as a resource that can be utilized. However, you cannot replant a 5,000-year-old tree. Even trees with much shorter lifespans cannot be simply replanted for each tree cut. Deleuze and Guattari coined the concept of the arboreal to contrast the mycorrhizal. In contrast to the spontaneous, emergent, and liberatory mycorrhizal, the arboreal is strict, hierarchical, and fascistic. In Deleuze-Guattarian terms, trees aren't essentially arboreal. Only the human can have this rigidity. It's a proto-cybernetic interlacing of capitalist ideology and a reductionist approach to preserving the natural world that gives rise to the arboreal. Trees and fungi lack the distinctions we place upon them. They share an extended reach of mycorrhizal networks and subterranean meshes that pass information and nutrients across species in ways that seem inspirationally, horrifyingly human. Being afraid of the dark of the woods is fine, normal even. There are things to fear within the expanse of nature, yet the how, the why, and the what that forms our fear are some of the most important aspects of our ideology. Dear listener, fear nature, but fear it from a place of love as we discuss trees, trees too the root of all evil, and tree venge having ourselves a little triple feature today.
1: Hey, we we're going on a Whoa. trip to the woods. Uh I think uh I think we have to start with as we always do, as we always do, by journeying through the formalism zone. Um and uh yeah, what I I I guess how How do we kind of square the problem of these films' content with the actual nature of their incredibly
0: low-budget form? So I think that this actually works really well for both Trees and Treevenge. I think Trees 2, The Root of All Evil, has some problems here. But when you you break down the concept... So Trees, uh, uh, dear listeners, is a film from 2000, directed by Michael Placatus. The film is uh, a shot-for-shot and almost line-for-line remake of Jaws, Um, except replace the ocean with a natural park here in the United States and replace uh, the giant great white shark of abnormal proportions with a great northern pine. And I think Jaws is a simple movie, right? Like, Jaws... Jaws has tons of special effects wonder and a lot of budget behind it. But you can you can make the concept of Jaws without the money, right? Because Jaws Jaws relies on the age-old horror trick of not showing the monster very much of being very very judicial about the effects that you do use. Um, it's so the basic template there allows you to really effectively use a constrained budget. What are your thoughts? And
1: I I don't know. I I I think the the this is a really good example of uh, both trees and Trevenge are both really good examples of how cinematic language can do a lot of the work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, especially if you lean into what we might call kind of like generic, as in like determined by genre rather than mm-hmm. being you know very common the the language of genre as well because uh it's basically using the cinematic language of the slasher killer in terms of, like, its camera movements and its mm-hmm. editing and its POV shots, but without an antagonist that can actually, you know, walk. <laughs> so... <laughs> trees, of course, not being known for, like, stalking people or or, like, chasing people down or dragging them away. But, like, if you use a certain kind of like a camera movement, if you use certain kinds of cinematic language, you can create that impression where just like a stationary single shot of a tree becomes something that's incredibly sinister.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think trees is is really, really successful with this because it's it's so clearly inspired by Jaws and and, and you know like mimicking much of Jaws. And so you're just like, at least while I was watching it, I was so like because I know I know how Jaws works, right? You go through most of the movie barely seeing hints of a giant shark, and then when you finally see it, it's it's like the, there's this wonderful opus of terror and natural monstrosity. And I was just on the edge of my seat waiting to see the tree in Tree Venge, <laughs> or I'm sorry, in trees. Um, I, I think this also works for Tree Venge too, because in Tree Venge it's like Christmas trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, And like, like, you know, we'll we'll touch on the emotions of the Christmas tree in the discourse zone, but like the film really effectively utilizes like relatively affordable Christmas trees, bought it some kind of lot, you know, like, and and fake Christmas tree parts later on. Like it's, it's really simplistic and really effective. Um, yeah. And you've, you've,
1: you've talked about, you've brought up Jaws already, um, and this is essentially a shot-for-shot shot remake of Jaws. Um, what do you think about it as a
0: parody? So th- this, this I think is really interesting because, like, it's almost a non-parody. Like, like there are a lot of comical elements. Obviously, it's a movie called Trees about a tree Jaws, but at the same time, like, it's such a faithful remake of the original that it doesn't quite like it, it doesn't lean in to a lot of the like i think really like because when i think of horror parody i think of like um the scary movie franchise and and those i think are like uh, not very effective as far as parody goes you know they're, they're 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 more reference comedy right they're just making references to horror stuff and not really parody parodying the form or the content this i yeah. think is like it's it's much the other way it's less concerned with like referential humor and much more concerned with like what can we do with the formula that jaws ultimately unleashed on the world yes absolutely uh, and we'll get into the ways that it uses that
1: formula uh, as we uh kind of move into our uh you know set up our tent in the in the discourse forest um <laughs> But I I guess I guess given that it's a film that's so influential and it's so like Jaws is a kind of landmark of, you know, popular cinema, what it like maybe it's worth asking what it actually what does it mean to make a parody of something that is already so culturally ubiquitous it's become a kind of like linguistic shorthand for something you know just those just those two notes of the score for example right mm-hmm. it's like instantly recognizable and it's like is it even possible to to parody something which reaches that point of kind of cultural saturation
0: Oh, oh, completely right, and like you can even see this in Trees because it's already like reaching outside of Jaws. There's almost not enough in Jaws to parody because it's so essential now. Like Trees is also making nods to Blair Witch and a couple other horror films, and and I think that that really demonstrates just how much Jaws has kind of suffused through horror. It's become like it's so much of a core text to what horror is today that like what would what would a parody of jaws even, even if you if you can do trees and and w- which is possibly the most parodic possible like con- concept and we're, we're talking about this from the angle that we're approaching it from i mean like you couldn't do a jaws parody with a sea monster
1: no that's true you couldn't because it's it's just too obvious um and i do i do love the idea i one of the one of my kind of favorite things about horror movies is when they take something that's entirely mundane and often completely stationary and try and make it into a into a yes. monster where it's like i you give me you give me a an 85 minute horror movie about like a rock that can kill people
0: i'm i'm on board i'm so there this we we absolutely need to do a movie about or an episode about rubber the tire that kills. Yes, yes, yes. I was, I, was, I, was, I love that film. I was thinking about rubber whilst watching this for exactly yep. those
1: reasons. Where it's like, how menacing can you make mm-hmm. a state a stationary
0: object look? <laughs> right and like just j- just how like ontologically nightmarish you can make something that's like completely about as close to unthreatening and mundane as any object can get.
1: Yeah, but there exactly. Is
0: a, yeah, so there is one character that I think in the context of the parody that I wanted to touch on. Um, and in Trees and uh, Trees 2, the root of all evil, it is Squint. Um, and in Jaws, you'll you'll probably know them better as Quint. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I think that this is this is because Quint is, I think, a heavily parodied character already. Right. Like like even in the context of Jaws, right? Like the grizzled, hard drinking sailor who's seen the horrors of war and, and he's 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 uncouth and you can't bring him into good society. But you need that wild man to get you into nature to fight the beast. You know, like by the time he arrives in jaws, like that that vision of of like the the menacing old sea salt is already parodic. And I think that squint works so well because, you know, the kind of like you know we 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 don't our our vision of like the the like old salt logging man it just has such different qualities, right? It's such less a menacing monster that they battle. and i I found squint to be like, just, just weirdly refreshing. How, how I think it was the most successful aspect of of this kind of shot for shot Jaws remake. I mean, he also dresses like a podcaster, so <laughs> so, so we're naturally
1: inclined to relate to him. Which is like, yeah, I'll I'll make an episode about it for two hundred dollars. But if you if you want if you want an ongoing
0: podcast, that's gonna cost you a thousand. <laughs> You want weekly bonus episodes, you better subscribe to patreon.com slash horror (laughs) vanguard.
1: Yes! Yes!
0: I was hoping you'd do that.
1: (laughs) Happily, unlike Squint, unlike Squint, we work for far more affordable rates, so if you... (laughs) If you would like an ongoing series about uh, about horror movies and leftism and radical politics and hanging out with your friends then please do consider subscribing to uh, patreon.com/horrorvanguard you get early access you get bonus episodes you get extra stuff on top of that and you get access to the horror vanguard crypt the spookiest discord server uh on the left it's 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 where we all go drinking and don't let anybody from uh, (laughs) those big cities in who come looking for free
0: water uh but yeah Yeah, you you better not be a a liberal leaning individual with a higher ed degree around 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 these parts (laughs) (laughs) mr We certainly uh, wouldn't take kindly to those folks. No. No, no, no. Uh, uh, this is, what do you I'm mean? Kind of imagining, you, went, you
1: went to graduate school as well. We've all we've all got regrets.
0: <laughs> no, Now I'm imagining the, the, the true parody would be inverting the formula, right? And you've got a bunch of grizzled old sea salts, and they're like, oh, we just can't theorize this ocean anymore. We need to bring in a big gun. And then there's like a guy that looks like you and me, just drags his nails down a chalkboard. It's like, <laughs> so... You need someone who's not only read to lose, but can understand it, and then everybody like shivers a little.
1: <gasps> the forbidden knowledge. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's maybe the most chaotic Patreon plug we've done in a while. Uh,
0: <laughs> you're gonna need a bigger interlibrary loan.
1: Yeah you you're gonna you're gonna need a bigger hard drive to store all of your still to be read <laughs> PDFs on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what we call that's what we call oh, a, that's
0: what we call a self call out <laughs> <laughs> but i mean like um, I, I should we, I, I, yeah i was i was i was just gonna say like i think formally speaking like trees trees does a wonderful job of copying the form and format of jaws uh we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the stumbling that is trees to the root of evil uh in a bit and then tree is a short film that that i think just again formally like just like we've been talking about these are really effective but it's time it's, it's time time to get in the big the big boat the big bleh, the big boat <laughs> and talk about some discourse yeah you're gonna need a you're gonna need a bigger discourse
1: let us let us <laughs> talk about uh honestly i think if we're talking about trees from 2000 and revenge uh we probably have to talk about municipal
0: politics Yes, yes, because just like Jaws, that's really what these films are about.
1: Uh, n- yes, that, that's exactly what these films are about. These films are
0: about the impossibility of dealing with a mare. <laughs> right? The the real monster in Jaws, just like the real monster in Trees, is the mare. And I think tr- in Treevenge, the real monster is also a, a related phenomenon, and that's the, the alienationist approach to city planning.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, and of course, the the problem here is not only not only that, but also um, the economic reliance on um, tourism as a mode mm-hmm. of survival yep. for a small rural
0: community. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, because um, if, if oh, I was just going to say much much like with the the COVID nineteen pandemic we could see that the you know like the, the machinations of capital can't even be paused for a season because that would be so disastrous the system is so over optimized that a single break would destroy a, everything th- throughout the system even even when that break is a tree that's eating children uh yeah of course so you can't you can't
1: stop because uh without tourism the entire place is going to be turned into a ghost town um mostly because you know, contemporary capitalism has, as you say, over-optimized, but also massively uh, uh, outsourced any kind of, like, job or community, mm-hmm. uh, reduced reduced rural communities to subsistence wages, uh, has made places overly reliant upon tourism that is inherently destructive of the natural environment that draws the tourists there in the first place. Um, yeah, it's, it's the municipal politics of trees is in a way even more fascinating than in Jaws, I think.
0: Ooh, that, that's, that I, I think is a really, really interesting take. Why, why would you say more, more to Jaws? Because I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> well, weirdly, weirdly, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sort
1: of going off instincts here, but I feel like going, going to the beach requires very little, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and is kind of a mass activity, whereas yeah. going camp going camping uh, is inherently a bit more niche, and it suggests that the margins of survival for this mm-hmm. community are much tighter. Right? Because Ooh, yes. if you if you if you cancel the camping for one season, I mean, how many people are going camping versus how many people are going to the beach on the Memorial Day weekend? I don't know, but I but I'm willing to bet the beach is probably winning out by a factor of like five or ten. So if you cancel oh, it for one weekend, like the margins of survival, is, uh, the margin of, of profitability in this place is so narrow, is so tight mm-hmm. that if you cancel it for one weekend, this place is ruined. And I'm like, in a, in a way, the stakes are kind of so so much higher. And it's like uh, all of the all of the you know red paint that gets thrown around would was never going to stop this
0: mayor Oh no, not not at all. And I mean, like I, I think you're completely correct. You know, like, like going, going to the beach requires, I mean, like even from the perspective of the individual tourist, right? Like going to the beach requires zero equipment. All all the equipment for beach travel is optional. You could get beach shoes. You could get a swim, a swimsuit, a towel, beach ball, all of that. Like, or you, you could kind of just go there and, and like, it's not expected that you'll have to stay overnight, but to go camping, you know like you 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 could die of exposure overnight if you don't have a tent and a sleeping bag with the proper temperature rating what are you going to do about water and food because at the beach there's probably a concession stand or you're you're probably within a short drive or or walk to a, a restaurant that's open during beach hours you know not to mention your car is probably nearby or there's public transit back to your hotel right like it's very innervated to to the front country to the urban core and I
1: actually think this explains quite a lot of the slightly weird stuff that happens when our uh, park ranger decides to call up one of them fancy big city botanists <laughs> that they've they've got now who's down there in New York doing research uh and like he comes up and is received with great hostility by uh you know our our blue-collar redneck logging community, because he's appeared on this magazine cover as Tree Hugger of the Year, uh, which, which I I didn't know was an award you could win. Uh, but but there you but go. But we here
0: on the show have new goals.
1: <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely, we we're going to aim high. And um, what well, I guess I guess I want to kind of unpick. What do you think
0: about that relationship between the botanist and the town? So, so, I mean, like, so we've got uh, our, our kind of parodic character here. We've got we've got Hooper in Jaws, who's also the the city slicking college kid uh, who who lacks the kind of practical experience at sea that these working people have. And then we have Cooper, uh, our botanist equivalent. And I find I find the contrast to be really interesting because this is kind of. I, I mean, like, so there's the. Um, like the 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 critique that's in uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, right? That that we could touch on, I guess. I guess briefly, here Clover's book that we. I don't think we. It's been a minute since we, since we brought up one of the core HV texts. Yeah, the, but, the HV canon absolutely does include Carol Clover. Oh, absolutely! But like in in that book, and again, my favorite passage talking about "I spit on your grave" is the is the section discussing that "I spit on your grave" is simultaneously a, a uh, revenge fantasy from the perspective of the the urban core against rural sites of capitalist extraction and I think we've got we've got the same thing here with Cooper right like you know it's 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 almost less so that his skills aren't well I think uh, two, two things it's less so that his skills aren't somehow meritous but what he represents is the incursion of capital's interests from the kind of moneyed city center, right? He he's he's tied into the wave of tourists that leave the beach a mess for the people who actually have to live in that town. But he he also represents, I, I think, part, an aspect of an ideological function, which is class as aesthetic politics. He doesn't look and you know his hands are too clean to be a working man. Even though if you've been in academia for a fourth of a second, you'll realize it's brutal and soul-sucking and just as hard as any logging job, but with different metrics and frameworks for that difficulty.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And it's uh, it's played up as like a joke that he goes into like the loggers bar and (laughs) wants to know what they've got on draft and appears to get like a pint of water. (laughs) Yep. Oh, I love that. Uh, which is 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 very very strange, but I think you're completely right. It's like the 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 politics are the 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 political economy of the urban versus rural tourism mm-hmm. question gets played out in the interpersonal conflict between Squint and Cooper.
0: Oh, abso- absolutely, and again, like this is I think a a, a classic example of like. They are in conflict because they don't realize that they're actually in conflict together against the mayor of the town, who is, as in Jaws, the the real villain of the show all along. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, right? Like C- Cooper would be able to study this tree safely, and Squint would be able to hunt it safely, if the mayor would only allow them to pause camping season until these efforts were completed.
1: Well, uh, I guess this brings up an interesting question. Um, What do you think the difference is? And this will let us talk about Trevenge a little bit as well. What do you think the difference is between hunting trees and logging?
0: (laughs) I love these movies so much. Less so Trevenge, or Trees 2, The Root of All Evil. We'll get into that. Um, But like... So I I think I think this is really really interesting because Trees draws a clear distinction between what Squint does and that's hunt trees hunt dangerous trees, and what most of the other blue collar workers in the bar do and that's logging, and and I think that this is like. It's it's there, there. There's so many angles that I want to approach this from, right? Because there's the, there's kind of a distinction between factory farming and hunting as as a way to gather meat, and then there's a distinction that we can draw in terms of like the the perceived approach to danger that's that's in their work, and then like there's so many like internal aesthetic conflicts, right? With with the relative like what logging actually does and how it functions. And then, like, ultimately, I would just, like, approach this from a class analysis standpoint, right, that a lot of the people who are loggers, like, I'm, you know, like 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 talking about uh, uh, Hill, a.k.a. Butterfly, and their uh, endeavor to save that tree, they were harassed by loggers, like just regular working people loggers. It's not like the CEOs coming down and throwing rocks at them. It's just people. But that's again a, a reflection of the uh, Squint Cooper conflict because these these people have a shared conflict against the boss class. What about, well, what about my, you? Uh, my argument would
1: be that there is a there is a meaningful distinction between tree hunting and logging only if you consider it from an anthropocentric point of view.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Aboriginal. Oh, yeah. Let's get going
1: botanically from the perspective of the non-human mm-hmm. uh what is the distinction there isn't one right it's not a surprise like treven trevenge uh shoots humans as like horror monsters right what what oh, are absolutely. we absolutely like what yeah, tre- are we if mm-hmm. we cannot if we in like we inflict such violence on the kind of on the web of life it, into which we are inextricably enmeshed but we create this artificial distinction right where we go well it's the like yeah i think there is a distinction if you consider this only from the point of view of the human i i, I totally the, agree from the, fo- from the from the forest's point of view there's no difference
0: you're you're i i appreciate this tree oriented ontology angle we've taken all of a sudden <laughs> But I think that I think it's completely correct. And if we extend this even further, like one one could argue that logging would be the greater evil of the two because logging is a mass killing of of forest systems, whereas uh, this fictitious tree hunting would be some kind of weird trophy sport that inflicts far less damage. But I think you know, just on principle, you're totally correct. And those moments in Tree Venge, like. Tree Revenge is a short kind of comedic horror film but it has some of the most shockingly impactful emotional sequences of of like happy tree families being ripped apart in the natural world to become christmas trees down the road. Uh yes,
1: I, I mean that that short film is is uh, just bleak and you realize that like again from the perspective of the tree what are we? you know you as you pointed out in the precy these are these are creatures with a sense of time that expand extends beyond our own finitude by like
0: mm-hmm.
1: exponentially right For trees like uh giant sequoias are thousands of years old there are there are um oak trees in England which are you know six five or six times the the age of the of the united states yeah. uh it's like there is this there is this kind of like frightening immediacy to human subjectivity when you compare it with the figure of the tree
0: and how how can we like so so you'll see a lot of talk from logging companies where they well they'll say something like, "Oh, for each tree we cut down, we plant two, and that's that's meant to assuage our guilt of the deforestation, but there's actually a lot of problems with that because a lot of the trees that are being cut down aren't, aren't young trees, right? They're much, much older than that. And when you just replant trees, they're all of a sudden all at the same height. The canopy systems are totally different. They're more prone to forest fires because they have these like, like one one thing you'll notice when you see really old trees is they don't tend to have very low branches. It's because they grow tall. And so the branches naturally grow up and they stop having the little branches down at the base, you know, like, and, and I think that, This this connects into what what we're talking with here, like in such such a grim way that like we can only approach this from anthropocentric perspectives, like that that bristlecone pine, like we we were barely out of the Neolithic when that thing first put down roots. We we were there is nothing recognizable as human, barely anything in, in a meaningful sense when that tree first first sprouts out of the ground like that is that is baffling to consider. The oldest living organism, single organisms are, are those trees and, and to kill one of those like that. What, what a wound in the cosmic fabric of existence well there's there's a there's a quote that I was I've been
1: thinking of from have you read richard power's novel the overstory Ooh no but I have a feeling that I'm going to Uh so it's it's about trees um and it's about kind of this challenge of thinking beyond the scale of, like, human subjectivity. Uh, and in it, there's, um, there's a character called Patricia Westerford, who's a botanist, uh, who discovers that trees communicate and are communal. Because this is another important point about, like, the idea of talking about one tree... Uh, is a is a is a sort of abstraction because it removes you know the great white exists the great white pine that the trees talks about exists within the context of the forest from which it is apart right you can't yeah. really you can't really consider it as a distinct entity and so uh in the novel uh Westerford says this you and the tree in your backyard come from a common ancestor. A billion and a half years ago, the two of you parted ways, but even now, after an immense journey in separate directions, that tree
0: and you still share a quarter of your genes. I love that. Not to keep going back to the bristlecone pines, but like, how, how, like, you know, like unwittingly killing something that has witnessed the rise of human civilization uh, we would watch treevenge and just really like let that soak
1: in yeah I mean the, I I think this is a really important point right this idea of like tree consciousness is systemic um, mm-hmm. because the loss of it, the loss of trees can only really be considered on that kind of vast scale but you begin to see it when you remove one from the network when you remove one from the from the forest you know the forest is a kind of as the planetary lung system you only start to see that collapse when you when you pull holes in the canopy right because even that very small change massively destabilizes the kind of complex system of interdependence that make up an ecosystem so i'm sort of like what's going to happen to the forest when the great white pine is removed right how do we how do we think about this in terms of system collapse because really that's the horror story that's happening here right
0: Oh, oh no totally and this is this is something that like this is one of the the common and i think really strongly articulated criticisms of jaws is that like sharks almost never kill people it's it's just you're more likely to get struck by lightning it's just so rare to be attacked by a shark same with bears, like bear deaths here in the United States uh, almost never happen. And when when they do, a shocking percent of them are caused by people doing shit they shouldn't have been doing, i.e. trying to feed the bears or going to, like, hang out with the bears at a zoo. Like, by hang out with, I mean jump into the enclosure of. And, like, like you know, like, just don't do not do that. and And, like, the idea of, like a killer tree like people are killed by trees trees fall on people and crush them and and the idea of having the same response to that that we would to like if if there was like a a wolf killed someone on a hiking trail or a bear or a shark out on the sea you know there would be calls to to go kill the creature and to cut down shark numbers or whatever like imagine doing that if if a pine fell on someone in your local forest preserve and then we started talking about culling the number of pines because they're a bloodthirsty breed.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, you know, I think this is this brings up this uh this really interesting question that trees and tree uh, raises, which is like how do we what is what is our own relationship to the forest? What is our own relationship to the trees? Because so often it's it's thought of in kind of distinct in a in a human versus versus nature or human and nature where in fact like we like what is it what is it that the trees eat in trees they eat like basketballs and kites and like mm-hmm. cars it's like we've become part <laughs> of their we've become part of their uh you know their food chain so w- what do you think about how these films
0: deal with that relationship between humans and nature but, so I think Treevenge is, I, I would argue, or uh, at least for me, it was, it was a more, I should say it that way, it was a more interesting example of the kind of interlacing between the human and the arboreal, right? Because what is what is Christmas if not one of, I'm, I'm sorry, Arbor Day, but what is Christmas if not the biggest tree-themed holiday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's it's all about you know like and, and there, there are some great like comedy bits about this but it's about cutting down a tree bringing it into your home covering it in crap and then throwing it out a few weeks later and that 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 i think is like that that is a decidedly capitalistic or, or rather i should say it has become a decidedly capitalistic way of expressing that holiday and those events right it's very telling that You know, we don't have a meaningful sense of like a communal Christmas tree that we could gather around and share, perhaps one that stays alive in the ground while we do it. You know, you have like these monstrous fucking pines that are hacked down, hauled across the country, propped up in New York City for a week and then thrown away. Like, that's that's just that's the most maddening anthropocentrism possible. Like, why not? Why not just celebrate your local trees? Why why not why not connect with the holiday that way? There's almost something irreligious, and then like the, the, the you know like simulacra. We have the plastic tree. We have the tree made out of made out of sequestered carbon that has turned into this vile goo that should have never left the Earth's dark embrace. That we forge back into the semblance the semblance of a real tree. Like, I don't know why I said semblance there. I think, like, Shlavoj Zizek is entering my being <laughs> right now. And I should stop talking. <laughs> that, that's my cue to stop is when the shlavoy starts coming through.
1: Well, I think actually what really fleshes this out <laughs> is uh, <laughs> is Trees 2, the root of all evil, where... Um,
0: uh, do you want to talk about chlorine? So, okay... A quick, quick primer on. I love trees. It's a wonderful concept film. Tree Venge is honestly one of my favorite short horrors. Like, just, just it has no right to be as emotionally impactful as it is. Cried the first time I watched it. <laughs> but trees, 2, the root of all evil. I think stumbles in a few ways. It It's very ableist. There, there is a sighted woman playing a blind woman who's the butt of every horrible joke about people without sight that you can imagine. And the movie doesn't do anything with that. That would be interesting or offer commentary. It is, it is as ableist as it comes. Um, but I think that another one of the movies shortcomings is that there's like a monster tree designed by, by the, uh, forestry departments, evil military scientists, which I think is a cute spin on, like, this shadow government agency making it the forestry service. You know, making it one of the more benign, the guys who manage trails and, and track tree growth for wildfires, making them the evil geneticists. But, I th- like, they, they wind up killing the mutant trees at the end with chlorine gas. And, like, there, there, there's something about gassing... Like, like it's, it's, it's the very Frankensteinian in that sense, right? Like, oh, we've, we've created this new life form to which we are now responsible. And our, our solution to encountering it is, oh, let's just, let's just gas it. Let's, let's just gas these forests, right? It's, it's echoing Agent Orange, right? It's echoing the, 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 the kind of deforestation chemicals dumped on Vietnam that, that have had absolutely horrific consequences, not only ecologically, but also from an anthropocentric perspective,
1: yeah, absolutely. And of course it misses out the fact that chlorine
0: gas would kill humans too. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, and and again, like 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 this this is all about like because the anthropocentric love subdividing. Right? Like we we don't like like an actual an actual anthropocentrism that saw things from the perspective of all people would be like so deeply interwoven as, as to offer just a shattering level of com- contemplative slowness. But whatever we sell, and I think I talked about this on an episode we did a thousand years ago, um, when I was a bristlecone pine. <laughs> but, like, but but the anthropocentric doesn't exist. It's an ideological project, right? Whenever whenever we we start talking about the anthropocentric, there's always ideologies that actually structure and define what that centri- or what the uh uh anthro in anthropocentrism actually is. And then, like, like again, like a- Agent Orange, right? It was sold as, like, a, an agent that would deforest areas, making it easier for American troops to navigate the woods and expose Vietnamese soldiers. Uh, but actually, it was a chemical poison designed to kill just about everything it touched, including people, right? And, like, the, the anthro there was American capital interest, Western capital interest, because it wasn't just America and Vietnam. But, like... I think you're completely, completely correct.
1: Uh, yeah, and this is this is kind of driven home to me by, like, a lot of these people who go camping don't seem to like being outside. <laughs> out, out, outside, right? There is like you go, like nature is appealing only on the terms of its kind of like control and submission to humans, right? Absolutely, one hundred percent. So, like, especially in trees, right? The whole thing is the whole the whole point is that a park ranger is afraid of the forests. Mm-hmm. Um, like his his son gets a, a tent and sets up the tent in the back garden, and he's like, "Get the hell out of that tent! What are you doing? You know, you're not <laughs> supposed." To. And it's like a lot of going going camping is not really going to. There's something very there's something very strange going on because it's not really about going to you know connect with nature or whatever that might mean. It's about going to impose a certain kind of nature upon your own subjective experience, right? So you yes are you, are you gonna are you gonna sleep under the no you're gonna sleep in a tent or an RV and you're gonna have a power hookup and you know the roads need to be accept- like and all of these things basically kind of shape our relationship to nature like they're they're mediated by which we encounter the natural world. And those mediations can be collaborative and can be kind of fruitful, but mostly, a lot of the time, it seems like they're mediations to make nature submit in some way, right? Because they come mm-hmm. from this, they come from this kind of like philosophical discourse of like dominion over nature rather than enmeshment within nature.
0: This, this I find to be so fascinating so i'm currently prepping for like i don't know i didn't even want to say moderately intensive camping trip just like a decent camping trip you know that's that's like over a week long and like you you do have to bring some society with you almost like an umbilical cord yeah and 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 part of this part of this is because could could you go out into the backcountry country? With with nothing and fashion an axe out of stone and cut down a bunch of trees to build a shelter, like you 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 could, but you would do like considerable ecological damage to to the area in which you were doing that. Like the whole leave no trace principle thing almost dictates that we carry you have to carry some society with you to carry back out the society that humans naturally shed as we go places, i.e., trash and poop, two <laughs> things. But um. What I find to be really interesting about this discourse, and I, th- I think you're totally totally correct, again, the old HV catch, catchphrase, yes, you're totally correct. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I find to be really interesting is kind of like how we mediate these relationships to to the natural world, right? Like what what are the, the kind of defining metrics, right? I really like hiking, and in hiking, there's like this fascination with the ultralight hiker to to take the the most expensive and the most minimalistic gear with you possible the, this fetishism of some kind of naturalized minimalism and low weight and like it's it's a, it's a but but like the, to get that like to get this perceived proximity to nature everything you use is like synthetic and made out of plastics and and like none of it is durable and it all gets destroyed relatively quickly because of how thin everything is and it's like, OK, well, there's there's a there's on an ideological level. We have a conflict between this aesthetic that we're chasing and the thing in itself. And I think it's it's true in the reverse, too, because you get so many people who go out into the woods who are like. Y- you big, big bowie knife on the hip belt and like three guns and like, what if I see a bear? I'm going to need my assault rifle and like. Like, you know, bear spray and making noise will work just fine. If the bear wants to kill you, it will. <laughs> and it's like again, like these are all uh, ideological projects defined by their aesthetic. And I think the task is to like to to under- to, to break that relationship down by understanding it. Right. We can't yeah, I divorce mean, ourselves I mean, from I society. Mean, I think
1: I think what marks it is not necessarily just an aesthetics, but a kind of consumption, right? So Mm-hmm. or certain mm-hmm. modes of consumption. I'm like, I'm not an an a an, uh, an anarcho primitivist. I think that's very very silly. <laughs> you know, I yes. like I like things like glasses and penicillin. Uh, like we we are in fact podcasters. <laughs> like but I also think that this is this is the point, right? Which is like what is the mode of mediation? What is the mode of of relationship yeah. that's being engaged in? And I think there are there are ways in which You're completely correct that it expresses a certain kind of ideological position that reinscribes that arbitrary distinction between between you know nature and culture, and actually. You know, you can re- you can reconfigure human nature relationships. Like if you removed them from the political economy of tourism, for example, if you removed it from like uh, the the idea of like consumptive camping or consumptive yep. consumptive appropriations of ru- of the rural. And you know, the, I think there's some really interesting conversations we have had around things like re- uh, rewilding, for example. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. and like. So, so this is not to say that like any kind of encounter with with nature or going like none of that is intrinsically bad, but it's the mode of mediation through which we kind of like come out of ourselves into the world is the point at which you see the re- the reinscription of the ideology of of, of ideology itself like the the point is it's just as bad to be like get out of the tent. what are you doing in the tent and to mm-hmm. shun nature entirely as it is to be like nature is something that we can dominate and we're gonna go down and cut cut down these trees and we're gonna tear them into pieces and turn them into a commodity, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I I I completely agree with that. I, I completely agree with your point that like the distinction between the human and the natural is arbitrary. We are animals who emanated from the natural world. Every single thing we've done, we've created, we that we do full stop is natural. There's nothing that a human can do that is beyond the scope of the natural. We we were made by this system and we remain a, a frail component of it. We we just unfortunately have been given the power to to destroy it back on a scale that's just never been seen in this world. Um, at least, I mean, like arguably for like maybe hundreds of thousands of years, depending on how you look at fungi, but like <laughs> fungal aside, aside, like it, it, it becomes a question then of, you know, again, to bring back anthropocentrism and, and you know, like Michael Risel or arboreal approaches. Like when we go back into quote unquote nature and when we build quote unquote civilizations how are we how are we doing this right you know like i think i think about the goofy meme turn turn your local golf course into a public sex forest right like 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 golf courses are are horrible and terrifying for the environment and the fact that there's golf courses in the desert are are like what a what a maddening project that is why is that not like just like you said rewilded why are why are lawns a thing i think I think what this
1: raises is the question of Prometheanism, mm-hmm. right? This this notion of like, what makes humans distinctive uh, is our ability to reshape nature. Uh, you know, Engels talks about this uh, in his, uh, what is it? The function of tools in the passage from ape to man, which is a really interesting bit of like early Marxist anthropology. But it's like, how do we understand ourselves in relationship to nature, and what does that Prometheanism look like now? Because what it, it too often collapses into is like the fire of extractive capitalism, right? We can but but we do have this. We do have the potential within ourselves to remake the world into into a utopia and a utopia for the non-human just as much as it is for the human. That's entirely within human capacity. Oh, totally. Right, we, the ca- do, the, ca- yeah, the, camp- the campground of utopia would not look like this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Put that on a shirt. You you camp in the utopia you deserve. Yeah, I think that I think that's such such a fantastic point. As we start to round out the the end of our triple feature dis- discussion here, um, and I was wondering, do you, do you have any thoughts on uh, uh, Christmas in general as as an arboreal holiday?
1: yeah i mean i think it ties into a lot of the things that we've been talking about right which is about this kind of like seclusion of humanity from nature this uh this idea of like nature as something that has to be dominated nature nature as the the kind of like the blank canvas of extractive capitalism because the trees mm-hmm. are not the trees are not just trees right the trees become commodities yeah and really, that's what the that's what the short film is about, right? It isn't about it isn't about people just cutting down trees. It's about the it's about literally the process of commodification. That's the horror story that's being told.
0: Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent, one hundred percent.
1: Right. It's the difference between somebody cutting down a, a tree because they need uh, to to build a table or to make firewood, and the, and a tree being cut down, and then turned into something that's sold at a particular time of year to maximize profit right that's that's the difference
0: (laughs) and even even with firewood and even with the creation of a table like 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 let let let, you know how many how many trees does it take to make a table you know like with the construction of a table why 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 are we not building tables that can be repaired rather than tables like from ikea that when they break they're just kind of toast why, why are basic woodworking skills now so distant and so expensive as to make repairing a cracked table leg something that is out of the hands of most households in England and America? You know, like and that, that not, not to make some like weird masculinist argument to woodworking as a skill set, but like that—that that is a byproduct of alienation, right? Like if we were less alienated, we would know a neighbor Who's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I muck about with woodworking in my free time. I could totally fix a snapped chair leg. But because we don't have those connections and our communities are so broken and, un- and disconnected from each other, we've lacked that like the wood wide web, the interlacing of hyphae and root systems like we don't have that as a species because we have severed it through social technologies.
1: Uh, for, a, but we any, can grow
0: back. Any, any final thoughts? Um, I guess my final my final thought would be like, so in the end, at the end of Tree Vange, trees win, and and it's kind of like this this furic and grim and funny moment, right? Where like it's it's both, it has both the taste of oh humans are the real virus, and it's also got something I think that's a little hopeful in there that like. Okay, in the movie, trees win by like, you know, murdering everyone in the suburb, but like, it's a horror movie. What would it mean for trees to, to actually put up a W in our world? And I think of like, I think of people protesting to defend their local forests. I think of indigenous land defenders, like, you know, people like trying to stop pipelines, which ultimately break and ultimately destroy the local environment. You know, I think of the rail workers who are fighting for safer conditions to stop making these like, quote unquote, bomb trains. Like just just, you know, get on the ground and then destroy whatever community they're in because they're leaking poison and killing 50,000 animals in a week. And so, uh, you know, like I think that there are those are all disconnected currently, but like ultimately ways for the human to return to the woods, not in like some weird fetishistic, deeply ideological like, oh, you got to be a man, you got to live in the woods with a big knife but like on an actual practical sense that like returning to nature means returning to ourselves.
1: Yeah. Donna Haraway uses the term of making kin. Ooh. Yeah. Which I really like. And I I think that you're completely correct. That's the vision of what does it mean for there to be a kind of win for the trees. And it's, it, it starts with this idea of like, we have the capacity within ourselves to not just, favor the our own kind of social reproduction at the you know whatever the cost in terms of extraction and in terms of damage but we can make kin with the non-human
0: mm-hmm. oh absolutely yep i i think that's a that's a beautiful place to end our 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 triple feature our discussion of trees trees two, the root of all evil and tree venge
1: oh superb what a place
0: to go out thank you everyone for for joining us uh on today's triple feature and we look forward to insert camping or woodland joke here uh please next episode patreon horrorvanguard.com, etc and so forth you know the drill stay spooky uh go plant your heart in the woods or something i don't know <laughs> that's a
1: wrap We hope
0: you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky!